I'm Daniel Giacopelli. It's the 20th of May, and this is The Courier Daily. We've been talking with small business owners all over the world to find out how they're adapting and growing during the health crisis. A bit later on today, we'll hear from Dan Murray Surter. He's the co-founder of Heights, a new wellness company that makes what it calls a smart supplement to help brain function and mental performance. But first up today, you may remember that way back at the beginning of the show, on the 2nd of April, I caught up with Caitlin Zeno. She's a travel startup entrepreneur in New York who runs Porter and Sale, a hotel concierge app that you can use to book a hotel and check out local experiences on the ground while you're there. Well, back when we caught up with her, she was pivoting the company to survive, given the ground has fallen out beneath the hotel industry, and revenue for her has dropped to near zero. One project she was experimenting with back then was hotel credits. Essentially, you buy a discounted hotel room now for a future trip. So I thought we'd check in with her today, almost two months later, to find out how it's been going. I was thinking about that this morning, knowing we were going to talk. And it's like the very first time I spoke to you, all of our revenue had been wiped out in like a day. Hotels closed and our industry was gone. We fired half of our staff and the staff that remained, we hadn't paid and we had no plans for payroll and we had no product. Like it was actually like, I don't even know how we were having a conversation about like the future. And yet you were still kind of optimistic and a bit like, you weren't like about to jump off a cliff or anything. You were kind of just like a bit, I can make it, I can do it. I know. And that's funny. I feel like I didn't know what was about to happen. Remember in early March when like the world just all of a sudden fell apart? It was so rapid that I think we all brought like our past assumptions about what was going to happen. And then it wasn't until you're sort of in the thick of it that you're like, oh, wait, this is totally different. I think the optimism was driven by like, wait, this isn't going to be the end of the world. And so you get to a certain place. And when you realize it is, you've already done enough work to be like, oh, wait, now we have a product and we've got a plan and there's a path going forward. And so that midway point is like we were probably the last time we caught up, we were just starting to really be in major execution mode, like coming out of the darkness towards we've got a plan and we're we're on it. You had a, and I'm sure people, if they're listeners and they listen every day, they'll remember, but your product of, at Porter and Sal is, you know, basically a hotel concierge app of sorts that allows people to connect with hotels and also cool experiences when they're on their trip. All of your revenue fell out from the bottom because hotels closed. You pivoted really quickly to hotel credits to try to give hotels a way to keep their cash flow going. You know, a community group for hospitality professionals you were working on. And then you were just trying to like work on a bunch of other shit just to keep the lights on, basically. Has any of that stopped? Are you still doing all of those things? We're mostly just doing hotel credits. I've got a lot of love for Hotel Community, which is this platform of bringing hotels together. But Hotel Credits has gone so gangbusters that like there's no time for anything else. I mean, the entire team is working till 3 a.m. and we're still always behind, just hustling. So Hotel Credits went from, let's give it a shot. We built it in 24 hours. Let's see if we can get a hotel on board. To right now, we've, we've actually just decided that that is our future product. Like our legacy product has no place in the future of travel as we see it, at least not in the next 12 months, right? So we've doubled down on hotel credits. Like that is now what Porter and Sale is and what we're going to do. So this is literally just giving hotels money right now for the promise of a discount on future rooms when we can travel, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's a marketplace for discounted vouchers for future hotel stays. And enough consumers are willing to just pay for imaginary travel right now? 
Well, that's the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said it's going gangbusters. So enough consumers are willing to pay for it that we feel confident that we should continue to invest in it. I think, will enough consumers continue to pay for it? And can we augment that growth whereby any cut we start to take is enough to sustain our own business? So those are two very different questions. The gangbusters growth has been like, we launched with three hotels. We like made a phone call to a hotel and said, would you do this? Right now we're at 70 hotels. We're growing 50% week over week in terms of new hotels. We've 10X our visitors. I mean, we're barreling towards $100,000 in sales for May alone on hotel vouchers. So it's been amazing and it's been great and it's been this incredible ride. The question is now starting to become, will consumers purchase at enough volume that this is like a sustainable business? Will hotels want to continue to offer this when the landscape changes? Like, what does this all look like as the world sort of opens up? Now, we're betting that there's still value, and I can go into why we think that there's value, but it's really an unknown. We have not yet commercialized on this product, so it might all fall apart when we do. What's the downside for a hotel to sign up for something like this? I think that they're concerned that they're giving away money. They're leaving money on the table. When they write back and they're like, well, I don't want to discount my room rates. I'm like, you're not discounting your room rates. You're essentially buying, it's like wholesale price. And so you're committing to, the, to a certain value, but you're not committing to a time. Your room rate can be $12,000. The voucher is still the voucher. It doesn't matter. So, but the responses from hotels that don't get it, it just feels like they're living in a bubble. Like they think it's January, 2020, and this is all going to just go back to normal miraculously, you know, in July. Why do they think that? They must have people whispering in their ear and saying, this is not reality. Or are they just surrounded kind of, you know, like Donald Trump's cabinet telling them what they want to hear and kind of just like, oh, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Right. I mean, I honestly, I don't know. I don't, is it denial? Is it like just, you know, bias within the industry that everyone's saying it's going to be fine. But occupancy rates are like where hotels are open, they're single digits. I mean, we're even looking at 40% occupancy in 2020. That's above like a 30% occupancy that most hotels need to at least continue to be in business, but like not much. And you're going to operate at that level for a year. I mean, you've got to be innovative. You have to look at alternatives. So I don't get it, honestly. But most hotels that we've put on the platform are coming to us. So that's also been totally different in our business. We used to, you know, I think it took us a whole year to get to 70 hotels with our own product. Now we have inbounds that we can't even keep up with. We caught up with Colin Nagy, courier columnist, the other day, and he was talking about how some of the hotel owners he's caught up with have been speaking about how they might adapt their services and their offerings to kind of cater to this weird social distancing age that we're all getting. I don't know if you've heard similar things, you know, spacing out hotel stays for a day, basically, to give it enough room to air out or whatever, or having like ways of showing that you actually clean something. This must be stuff that people are all working on in the background right now. Yeah, I mean, I think cleanliness is really the first priority right now for hotels. They want people to feel confident that their hotel is clean and it's safe to be there. Yeah, so they're talking about everything from partnering with, like Johns Hopkins is partnering with the Four Seasons. I think they'll probably set the standard on terms of guidelines of cleanliness. Oh, so there's going to be some like proper, like the manifesto of how hotels can go about doing such things. I think so. And you know how you have like, if a hotel is like 
you know, disability friendly, they have a different mark for that. I think you're going to end up having some sort of outside validation, like this hotel has followed best practices for cleanliness and sanitation. Airbnb is, I think, allowing or asking 24 to 72 hours between stays. I've definitely seen hotels do that. I've heard the seals on the door so that like, you know, no one's been in there since it's been clean. So at Airbnb, the platform, the company themselves have issued guidance to their hosts saying, can you leave a gap between stays? Really? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hosts must not be very happy about that. I mean, they lose revenue. Not that anybody's booking them right now at all, but still. (laughs) There was a good piece in the New York Times yesterday about hotels versus Airbnb in this new environment. And essentially when it comes to confidence, cleanliness, like knowing that you're taking care of refunds, cancellations, like hotels win all the way. I think the one value of an Airbnb in this scenario is you're, you're likely alone. It's likely a private home or private stay. And so there aren't other guests to worry about. But across the board for all the other points that matter for a guest, it was like hotels are winning. And it was an interesting piece of like, does this become the great equalizer of hospitality that Airbnb disrupted the industry before? Is the industry now going to have their moment to, to come back? The crazy thing is, this is all on the premise that consumers are going to have confidence enough to want to travel. And the surveys and the research that we're seeing is like, travel is going to start drive markets, local travel, and then when there's a known treatment or when there's a vaccine, people are going to start to want to get on the plane. So, you know, when we talk to hotels and they are talking about cleanliness, like that's great. Of course, they need to be doing that. But at the same time, our approach to Porter and Sale is we need to create travel demand. We need to create a new demand. We need to develop travel opportunities. And for us, that's about you sell the future, dude. Like there is no travel next week, no matter how clean your hotel is. So sell the future dream and let people bank on that and live on that future plan. That's where you want to live. Caitlin Zeno there from the travel startup Porter and Sale. Next up, Dan Murray Surter runs Heights, a newly launched wellness brand that makes a smart supplement to boost brain function, mood, and mental performance. It's packed with things like omega-3 oil, B12, blueberry extract, and other vitamins. So how are sales going during a time when we're all locked in our house and stressed out of our mind? And why isn't Dan spending any money at all on marketing? I caught up with him earlier today to find out. So I guess the main change really is when we last spoke, you know, we were pre-launch pretty much. And so we launched in January, or I should say soft launch, because we'd had a failure in the past, you know, with gravel, we have some sore muscle memory and decided that we would be pushing our theory of a lean startup as much as humanly possible. So we didn't actually hire anyone at launch and we were doing a lot of things, just the two of us and with some, you know, contractors and advisors and and agencies and stuff. But the reality is we are definitely happy with how it's gone, as in we've continued to grow. The main change for us has been in the last five weeks, we have hired four people. So we have gone from a team of zero employees to four, and we're still hiring another two at the moment. You know, we've started off as a fully remote team. We still have our office in Soho, which is a bit of a pain in the ass because we're paying for it. And we haven't set foot in it now for about two and a half, three months. But the reality is all of our thoughts were about, you know, what kind of office do we need next? What does the team look like, et cetera, et cetera. And actually, we've started off, we've got a colleague in Morocco, we've got a colleague in Istanbul by not planning it but we've started off as an international completely remote team and so I now have a completely different experience starting up this company technically speaking than I ever anticipated and it's 
in a weird way, I'd like to say, you know, it's a dream come true. I've, I've always been someone who likes to try new things. Taking the deep plunge on starting a fully remote company, not something I think I was bold enough to try and do because of how I'm used to experiencing culture and what it means to have culture and, and human connection. And obviously we're in brain health and mental wellness. So being physically present for people's emotional well-being is important. So we're having to learn different ways of doing this stuff. But it's actually been something great. And I actually look at it as a huge positive. We'll always be a remote company now, like remote first for sure, because you know our colleagues don't know any different from starting at Heights. So basically, you haven't met half of your employees? No, I haven't. I have on Zoom. You're completely right. It is weird. It's weird to say that I haven't met my colleagues. But actually creating a hiring process over Zoom in itself has been super helpful and interesting. It's made me really think about the time spent on the process and how to systemize some of those things and actually makes all of the pre-screening a lot more effective and efficient because you have to be really diligent with it. It's been a great challenge as a founder, right? As in, it's thrown me in the, at the deep end to figure out a whole bunch of things I wasn't planning to need to figure out at all. When you start up a company, you've got all the things you know, you know you're going to have to do your customer acquisition, you know you're going to have to figure out who your customers are, what makes them tick, how do you raise money, all those things. You definitely don't need to figure out like how any of this works in a pandemic, right? So <laughs> being thrown into doing that at the same time, but literally at the start of the company, and the start of the culture has been pretty awesome. And the hiring, was that a direct response to a boost in sales for your product since the pandemic hit? The interesting thing about our product so far is we haven't spent anything on marketing. So we don't actually have a marketing budget. We were building a community in the background anyway with Heights through our newsletter and through our social channels. Look, it has grown a bit faster, yes. We've gone from £10,000 a month MRR to £25,000 a month MRR in the last couple of months. So, you know, it's definitely grown considerably. And it's in a great spot considering that, you know, when investors ask us what our LTV to CAC is, which of course is sophisticated investor language for lifetime value to customer acquisition cost, we either have no answer or such an incredibly smug answer. Because if you're not spending money on marketing, the answer is kind of infinity or zero. It's very hard to answer that question. The main metric that's taken us by I guess not surprised because we work so hard at it, but the supplement subscription space, that's our core product, is a, a brain health and mental wellness vitamin, so like everything you need according to science in one. The space is usually a 20% retention rate after month one, so there's a huge drop off. You get 100 customers in month one, 20 have retained by month two. We started with 80% in our retention rate, and that's now gone up to 94%. It's amazing, and it's grown considerably. But I have to say that that metric is certainly based on the fact that, you know, half of our team are product. So it's literally their job and they're figuring it out and it's working. So I can't say that's like a pandemic miracle. It's more that that's somewhere we've invested in and it's, it's making a difference. And I think the other thing is, understandably, it's very rare for the government to come out in support of, of something you're doing. And not that the government's come out and said everyone needs brain health and mental wellness vitamins, obviously. But they have come out and said that everyone in lockdown needs vitamin D supplements. And vitamin D is one of the top ingredients we have in our product. That is the only thing that they've said, like 100%. And also now there's lots of efficacy and evidence coming out about vitamin D and vitamin C with regards to COVID-19 specifically for immunity. 
those things are definitely helping, right? Because if you think about who a pre-existing customer might be, someone who's already aware and interested in their mental wellness is, is one type of customer. But, you know, we've got a very specific attitude towards not selling through fear. So we don't sell through the idea of cognitive decline or any of those things. It's all about heights. So it's all about positive connotations. But in a fear-based society, when people are hearing the government recommend things and suggesting things and science papers coming out, you get a very different type of customer coming into your world. That customer wasn't already interested, but they've come in from a totally different emotion and totally different source and might have happened to find you and through their own research has decided to become your customer. So that has been helpful. And I'd certainly say that being a business in wellness and health in general, if you remove the fact that we've got a physical supply chain, and that's obviously not an ideal thing in a pandemic. Otherwise, to be in this space is very fortunate. What was, though, the logic of not spending anything on marketing? Because surely if you put some Instagram ads on targeting people right now, you would imagine you get a huge boost in sales. It's cheap now, too, to do that. The correct answer is because we know for a fact that our website is sub-optimized. It's, it's the feature of having two guys doing everything, not having a team, not being set up to do all the things. And we've identified a bunch of areas on the site that need fixing in our funnel because we have done retargeting to figure out the funnel. So we haven't done any paid acquisition or anything, but we've, we've used data to really understand what the problems were. We have been really strict on hiring and like a very, very high bar. It's what happens, obviously, if you have a failure in the past, you blame yourselves and you blame like all sorts of things around you and how you'll do it differently this time. We've just hired a full stack developer finally, to fix all of the things that we know. So we would totally do paid acquisition and paid marketing, especially as the price has come down. But we want to be extremely efficient with everything that we do. And to be honest with you, um, the best kind of customers come from referral. As you know, we've picked up some ridiculous customers through referral. We've had Stephen Fry, we've had Dr. Rung and Chatterjee, we've had the founders of Calm and WeTransfer and Planet Organic and, you know, all these different amazing people in different areas, all taking our product every single day, telling their friends, sharing it with their employee bases. It's not that we don't want to do it, but like the truth of the matter is, and this is the other side to the story, we were caught out at the start of a fundraise right at that time. So we were raising a £2 million seed round. That is still not closed, unsurprisingly. We don't have any marketeers in the company because we don't have a marketing budget. So it's our core desire to hire this marketing person, but it seems a bit ridiculous to hire someone without a budget. You mentioned uh, some supply chain issues. I mean, on this show every day, we've had people who are talking just constantly about disruption they've had with their supply. What, what have you guys faced with your product? Yeah, so we're really lucky. Our product is all environmentally sustainable. It's all vegan, plant-based, blah, blah, blah. And we have a you know brand value of never compromise. So we have the highest quality ingredients from all over the world from different suppliers. And the funny thing about that is our blueberry extract comes from Italy, which was actually going to be our biggest problem. We've managed to solve it. My business partner, Joel, was super on it. At the start of this maybe being a pandemic, he went to town. And actually, our outer packaging is the only part of our product that comes from China, it's uh, fully compostable, biodegradable sugarcane starch waste, basically. And that's the shipper that it comes in. So it goes straight through the letterbox like that. Because Chinese New Year is like we know always a massive problem. And because we were planning to launch in January, which is around the same time, we got way ahead of that problem 
by getting as much as we possibly could of the outer packaging out of China just before. Literally after Chinese New Year, anyone trying to get stuff out of China where the pandemic started to really grow uh, was impossible. So we got super lucky on that. And then we heard the Italy rumors. We got the blueberry extract in advance, all paid for and out the country. Smuggling blueberry extract out of Northern Italy or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds so ridiculous, but it's true. And then we had to move of everything to the way our product works. Everything gets shipped to France where it's actually put into the capsules because we use patented capsules that have a slow release design to them. So they're the only manufacturer in the world that makes this one type of capsule. That happens to be in France for Europe. And they had this whole like thing where they had to like set up a separate factory as well to keep the social distancing. So it's been a complete and utter... I mean, it's been truly fascinating, actually, At the end of it all, um, so our distribution centre, which is in the UK, we actually had to move that completely because that's our fulfilment centre. We actually moved to one where the NHS gets their PPE supplies. So I have to say, like, one thing that we haven't compromised on in this business at all is we've got some really legit advisors. Our advisor for all of our supply chain was the global head of logistics at the Hutt Group. And she called all of this a mile away. I mean, it's just not something that we would have ever known to do. You know, it's our first time doing a physical supply chain business. So none of these things would have been obvious to us. So I have to say, it's not that we're geniuses, it's that we were given a real kick up the arse by her to take action right now on all of these things. And and we have, and it's meant that we've actually got our supply chain completely sorted until at least the end of this year. But you know, that's been an investment. Downside of that is it's been an investment we weren't anticipating paying more for in advance. So we're lucky that we had some cash reserves, but the flip side of that is we've got no marketing budget for it. So it's put us in this weird position where our marketing budget's gone on definitely getting ahead with supply chain. So now we need to definitely get through our funding round to keep it going. But it's a very classic example of having to move lots of different pieces to figure out like the right way. And so we've made compromises internally for that, but hopefully they're the right decisions. We won't know yet. And that's it for today. If you liked what you heard, as ever, I'd love if you could subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. And as always, sign up to our email newsletter, Courier Weekly, for more stories of adapting, pivoting, and growing during the crisis. That's at couriermedia.co slash sign up. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. Courier Daily is back again tomorrow.